you get off on the weird? Monsters, Halloween, horror. You've heard of word porn, car porn, earth porn. Now prepare yourself for monster porn. Is this really a good idea? Weird fiction and horror podcast. Created by the Backwards Hat Guy, Matt Cummins. Are you trying to teach psychic powers to animals? Puggles, the abomination trapped in the body of an adorable teacup piggy. Good for humans. And myself, lead occultist, Brett Norwood. This week's story is Ghost Cat by Brett Norwood. Good Monday, Monster Baiters. What's 50% woman, 50% puma, and 100% cougar? We've got one for the cat people today, so I'll hand it over to our crazy cat lady, Brett, to tell you about it. Go eat a litter box, Matt. We'll get to it. Little catty day, are we, huh? Anyway, what's new on the Apple Podcast Reviews? We've got a new Apple Podcast Review from listener Malibu Drew 4454 who says, Thoughtful show. Great series. Very thought-provoking. Hope for more episodes. Huh. Has, uh, has this guy even listened to the show? <laughs> I think we're thought-provoking. Our ideas are definitely anger-provoking, disgust-provoking. So why not thought-provoking? You know, thoughts like, uh, what in the world am I listening to right now? Wasn't that also an Apple Podcast review? Yeah, exactly. So, see, they know what they're talking about. Anything else to say, Matt? Nope, just subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks, and on to the show. Hey, Matt. Why do women like horses? What? Is it like a substitute for a masculine presence thing? Like, they're these big, strong creatures, but also at the same time a pet? Is it like horses make women feel safe, but at the same time it's, it's like a pet, and she can care and fun over it? Yeah, it's a cliche that some women like horses, like, a lot. But I have no idea why we're pursuing this conversation. Because I'm going to turn myself into a horse! I had a eureka moment, Matt. The solution to being loved is so simple. It's been staring me in the face this whole time. The obviousness of it is truly astounding. I must become a horse. <laughs> a horse's ass. Do, uh, do horses make you, you know, feel a little insecure? Or is that what this is about? It's about getting my mane brushed by the tender hand of a farm girl, Matt. It's about winning in the sunlight on the plains. Oh, motherfucker, we're already standing in a magic circle. Shazam! Fin Fan Foo, Russell Ghoul, Hong Kong Fui. Oh, God, what did you do? You have a horse's tail, but nothing else has changed. What's that, Matt? All I can hear is neighing. Oh, Lords of Shabalba! What? What have you done? Uh, you've always had kind of a long face, right? What? No! Oh, God, my square and hypermasculine jawline! The horse thing's not the worst look. Your wife might, in fact, call it bay. <laughs> if I have the head and you have the tail, who has the... Not me. Damn. <laughs> me either. I guess it's just the head and the tail. The rest of the horse must be trapped in the azoth of the magical operation. Oh, God have mercy. Does it have my face in your butt? God, forgive this abomination. What do we do now? God, where do we go from here? Let's go pick up chicks. Rhett sank readily back into go mode. Too easily, perhaps. That necessary detachment he had found and which kept him sane in cobble the numbness to feeling and to terror particularly, that allowed him to become a mere instrument of the circumstances, to do what needed to be done and not curl in the fetal position and babble like a child. It had been eighteen years. He knew because that was how old Brooklyn was. He never thought he needed it again. He'd hoped he'd never need it again. But he always knew it was in his bag, and there was comfort in knowing that. He wove through the brambles of the draw. His Walther raised like James Bond. He hustled as quietly as a hunter toward the ridge, 
in the prairie mound known as Massacre Hill, where there was a monument and a singular willow tree. As he approached, he found himself ducking through a stand of chokecherries. They were ripe. What had begun as a puma sighting had progressed, unfortunately, to a missing dog situation. And more unfortunately, that led to a missing daughter situation. And if the cat was taking dogs, it was a short leap to make to... Wretch shoved the thought below. No time for that. This was go mode. Come on, Catilla the cunt. Here, kitty kitty, he thought grimly. The bend of the McClintock ditch created a nook full of scrub at the foot of Massacre Hill. It was here that Rhett glimpsed the puma as she paced between arched boughs of berry-laden chokecherry, flashing that baseball bat tail, and he leveled his weapon. From the stink, he already knew there was a kill stashed somewhere near. He hoped it was a deer. If not that, his damned beloved dog. He couldn't let the thought go further. His finger gripped the trigger. He called out for Brooklyn one more time. There was little use. He'd been calling out all evening. The cat hissed and then stood up on her hind legs. He had no idea Pumas did that. A bear, yes, but a mountain lion? He hesitated. She stepped toward him, deliberately and precisely, which looked quite funny on those odd-proportioned feline legs. And she raised her hand. Her hand? Why did he think hand? That's when he first noticed the necklace of turquoise and fossil seashells laced around her neck complimenting the chestnut hair. Rhett half-lowered the gun. There were bunnies hopping around the bushes at his feet. No. Not bunnies. Impossible. The native woman reached her hand toward Rhett and faced him between the violet-glowing chokecherries. She wore a puma skin. She sneered. The photographer's magic hour gilded the world in twilight gold, and caused the bighorns to shine like cyclopean mounds of azure jewels on the horizon. Purple had just begun to bleed across the sky from the west. Brooklyn sat for her senior pictures in the bed of her dad's vintage Chevy, a 1963 stepside, teal blue. Leaning against a hay bale and receiving unhelpful kisses from her blue-eyed ranch dog, Matilda, which threatened the integrity of her hair and makeup but made her laugh. Brooklyn gave her puppers a kind shove and pressed down his butt to make him sit. That's it, she cooed, rubbing his shaggy breast. Look pretty, puppers. There you go, Brooklyn, called Katie, the 40-ish photographer, who was a high school classmate of her father. Keep doing you. You're doing great. And Matilda, you're a natural. What a knockout. Kitty laughed heartily and kept snapping. Brooklyn's eyes fell in the mountains, and her face became serene, then grave. Katie continued to snap pictures as Brooklyn drifted out into space. Her mind went into the future. In six months, she would be moving into town on her own and attending Abzarka University. Like most of the 18-year-old girls who went there not knowing what to do, she was looking at the dental hygiene program. It was that or nursing, both specialties of the vocationally-oriented Abzu. But Brooklyn didn't really feel called to that, or to anything in particular. She wanted to do something where she could help people, and feel useful, and have stability. But the specifics didn't so much matter. There was a part of her that was just waiting for a Prince Charming to sweep her up and sort out her future for her as boldly traditional as that fantasy was. Love your hair, Katie called randomly, snapping frame after frame. Are you talking to me or Matilda? Brooklyn called back, chuckling and then smiling sweetly at her dog, which elicited a flurry of opportunistic shutter clicks. Brooklyn roused from reverie, refocused on roughing up the scruff of Matilda's front. The dog's tongue fell out as she grinned. Matilda was a three-legged ranch mutt with lots of multicolor scruff and bright blue eyes that almost looked like they were lit from within with icy fire. She'd gotten her name from the song Waltzing Matilda due to the fact that she walked in 3-4, as an 11-year-old Brooklyn had put it, quite proud of her wit. 
That and Matilda just made a good name for Ranch Dog. Let's go out for a few by the fence line, Katie called. With the mountain behind you. Katie stood up straight, pressing her fists into her lower back to help accomplish it. Her Nikon DSLR hung from her neck over a black wool sweater. Brooklyn hopped down from the tailgate and Matilda followed. Brooklyn straightened her baby blue button-down shirt and gunmetal slacks and flipped her golden hair to make it fall straight. Glancing at Katie, she smiled and followed her out into the field, and Matilda went with them. A worn two-track brought them out to a ridge where they went out into the dry grass and walked along the fence toward the ravine of the McClintock Ditch. Beyond the ditch, to one side, was what until recently had been part of the Eden Ranch, but which had sold a couple years ago to the Pine Ridge High-End Subdivision and Golf Resort. To the other side was Massacre Hill, and the Willow and the Old Stone Monument. Both plots of land were dwarfed by the mountains above them and only several miles away. At the end of the two-track, Katie and Brooklyn passed her dad's old square-body Chevy. Long now a dead husk of a machine, jet-black paint tarnished with spots of rust that made something like a camouflage pattern of it. A lift kit below totally undermined now by the flat tires. A decal of a backward black-and-white flag decorated the corner of the rear windshield. Not long after they left the two-track, Brooklyn realized she'd lost Matilda. She spun around and found Matilda had frozen near the Chevy's bumper, sniffing the air, hackles raised. Matilda, Brooklyn called. And then she asked her, What is it, girl? The dog's concentration on whatever had disturbed her was not easily broken. That's weird, Katie said, seeing what was happening. Does she smell something? Yeah, Brooklyn said. Something has her spooked. Katie glanced around. The field had been hayed in July, so now come autumn the grass was not that high, and they were in the open atop a ridge. There was no sign of anything nearby, but down in the ravine by the ditch there were willows and brambles and a few poplars and cottonwoods, and there could easily be something down there. Lion, maybe? Katie wondered. Or a bear? Never seen one out here, Brooklyn said, but maybe. Maybe we should go back toward the house, Katie mused. Brooklyn had played in the ravine around the ditch so much growing up that she was reluctant to feel threatened by it now. She'd never seen a lion or a bear down there, and the only time she felt threatened playing on the property had been when a cow escaped from the Eden Ranch and stamped at her once when she got near it, when she was ten or so. Come on, Matilda, Brooklyn tried again. The dog didn't budge, but curled up her lip. Hmm, Brooklyn hummed. Look at her, Kitty said. Let's head back. Better safe. A wild, shrill cry like a woman's tore through the still evening air, running Brooklyn's blood cold. All of Matilda's hair stood up as she snarled in reply. What was that? Kitty wondered emphatically. Her eyes were big and her voice lowered. I think it was a lion, Brooklyn answered in a hushed voice. God, Kitty said. It sounds like a woman dying. Brooklyn grabbed Matilda by the collar and tried to pull her along toward the house. As Brooklyn pulled at Matilda and looked up at the ridge, a sudden breeze cut through the formerly still air, a singular gust that died out as swiftly as it rose, fluttering Brooklyn's hair once before proceeding in a chevron through the knee-high grass, like the wake of a ship at sea toward the ravine. And there, as it reached the edge of the ravine, the zigzagging pattern met the silhouette of a puma, which flashed its tail in the gloaming light. Look, Katie squeaked. I see it, Brooklyn whispered. Wow. She had never seen a puma before, let alone one on her family's land. After another flick of the tail, and before Katie could raise her camera, the cat slinked over the ridge and back toward the ditch. Brooklyn ran inside and told her dad about what they'd just seen, 
Wanting to see it himself, he went up to the bedroom to get the pistol he kept in the nightstand, threw on his black windbreaker at the door, and then marched out toward the ravine. Brooklyn waited in the driveway with Katie, watching him go, arms crossed against the growing cold. Might be one for animal control, Katie said. He's not going to shoot it, is he? Oh, no. The gun's just to be safe, Brooklyn said warmly, and Katie nodded. Damn. I'd have liked to get a shot of it, Katie muttered. When Rhett came back toward the driveway, tucking his pistol into the waistband of his baggy black utility pants in the back, she called out to him. Did you see it? He shook his head, and then answered as he got closer. That's why they call it a ghost cat. There and then gone. The next week, the local paper ran a story about the cougar sightings around Pine Ridge. Well outside of city limits, it fell to fish and game rather than the city animal control, if anything was to be done about it. And the ranchers wanted something done with it before it started taking calves from the nearby ranches. Also, the people living in Pine Ridge wanted something done, fearing for their children. The cat had only appeared a few times in the morning or evening, once to a jogger at 5 a.m., and another time to a lawyer leaving the clubhouse in the twilight. Fish and Game was forced to move on it when the pets started to disappear, the dogs chiefly. However, they had been so far unable to capture or even sight the animal. They found traces of it here and there, but apparently it paced a vast range through the foothills. Rhett, when he heard it might have been taking pets, forbid Brooklyn to go out in the evening or morning alone. They kept Matilda close to the house. Brooklyn's glimpse of the cat, though short-lived, lived on in her subconscious, because she dreamed of the animal several times over the subsequent nights. Each time it was the same, but different. She'd relive that brief moment with the silhouette on the ridge, as the queer singular gust sent a ripple through the prairie. Only each time she relived it, there would be one or more additions to what was otherwise a straightforward memory. More than once, the cat's eyes glowed red. One time, the gnarled willow from Massacre Hill was there, on their property with the cat. Brooklyn didn't think much of it, only that it might have been a once-in-a-lifetime sight, and this must explain why it showed up in her dreams for several nights afterward. It was that Wednesday that her father told her, out of the blue as if it had hardly warranted a remark, that Kitty would be joining them for dinner. Uh, as thanks for doing your pictures, he explained. Didn't you pay her for them? Brooklyn said after a moment. Her dad was silent, with crossed arms on the leather sectional, in front of the wall-mounted TV where he was apparently watching someone clean a gun on YouTube. After a good twenty seconds, he said, well, yeah, but she gave us a friends and family raid. Of course, Brooklyn wondered exactly what this meant. She had been content to naively believe her dad had called up Katie only for the business of getting the pictures done. But it occurred to her now that she hadn't been aware of her dad spending any time with a woman in a good five years. And that, that is what made this feel so strange, made her feel incredulous almost. She pictured Katie in her memory. Long black hair, the black sweater. She was possibly pretty. But she didn't seem like her dad's type at all. Not that Brooklyn had any clear idea what that type might be at this point, if not going only off the basis of her mother. At around 5.30 that evening, there was a contact sheet on the dining table between Katie's plate and Brooklyn's. They leaned over it, chattering, picking the best shots. Katie continually complimenting Brooklyn's looks. Every now and then, Rhett would lean across the table and raise his nose appraisingly and say something like, Oh, I also like that one there. Otherwise, he sat back and looked content, his face slightly flushed with wine, and worked on his steak. So are you ready to make the leap to good old South Coffee University? Katie asked Brooklyn. Falling back in her chair with her glass of wine half-raised, it was the ironic name locals had for the college, dating back from when it was just a community college off of Coffee and Avenue at the edge of town. It belonged to Katie and Rhett's generation. 
Brooklyn had yet to hear anyone call Abzu that. Um, Brooklyn started. It's exciting, I guess. She laughed. I mean, I'd rather be going to the University of Hawaii, but... I do hear they have the better hula program. Rhett joked and Katie laughed. Katie leaned in and put her hand up like she was shielding her voice from reaching Rhett's ears. The surfer boys are pretty cute, too. Hey, Rhett said. Unless he's paying the bills with that surfboard. Just like you pay the bills with that gun collection? Brooklyn retorted with a roguish grin. Well, Rhett said and he laughed. I am paying the bills. He reached for the bottle of red. If we're going to start talking boys, I'm going to need more of this. I'm 18, Dad, Brooklyn reminded. I know. That's what terrifies me. He took a long pull of wine. The world's not like it used to be. I worry about your generation. Here we go, Brooklyn said inwardly. I hope Katie's ready for this, the... This doesn't feel like the country I fought for speech. At least that's where this sort of statement usually ended up. He would emphasize that it wasn't about being a Democrat or a Republican, but an American. But his objections to today's society would mostly follow the Fox News talking points. Brooklyn broadly agreed she was her father's daughter, after all. But she couldn't think of a better way he could drive a woman off than talking politics. To Brooklyn's surprise, however, Rhett's diatribe only made it a few remarks deep before Katie stole the show from him. And for the next hour, they commiserated on the sad state of the world with the glee of children sharing their favorite toys. Brooklyn sank back in her seat with her phone. She was about to excuse herself when Katie said, apropos of nothing, You know, I keep thinking about that mountain lion. Rhett nodded. Me too, Brooklyn said, sitting forward. Must have been quite the sight, Rhett said, with the feeling that it was said just to say something. It was, Brooklyn thought, but that didn't quite explain it. Katie told them, I've hardly remembered a dream since I was a little kid. I'm just not the kind of person to remember any dreams when I wake up. But I've been dreaming about that mountain lion all week. On a day next week, just home from school, Brooklyn paced in the backyard, staring at her phone while Matilda relieved herself. It was a nice, mild afternoon, warmer than average, being somewhere near 60 and sunny. The air smelled a little like cow pies that had been frozen and then thawed. When Brooklyn looked up, Matilda was bolting out of the yard. She shouted after her and then cursed and shouted again. She glanced at her phone once more, considering replying to her friend Devlin's message about doing something tonight before dealing with Matilda, but... Grudgingly, she shoved the phone halfway into her back pocket and started toward the gate, calling Matilda again. By the back gate, there was a stack of lumber meant for a summer project that didn't quite happen. A new garden shed her dad had wanted briefly to build. A small movement caught Brooklyn's eye, and she stopped. She looked just in time to see a rabbit get flushed out of the lumber and disappear again through the gate. Hmm, Brooklyn mumbled, and she followed it. She felt like there had been something more to it than the little gray body dashing through the grass. When Brooklyn followed the rabbit through the gate, her heart leapt from her body. In the shadow of the fence, the mountain lion lay in the grass, contently tearing apart the rabbit, which was not a rabbit, but more like a hare. And there were little antlers on its head. The puma gripped the ribs of the jackalope and jerked, and there was a meaty crunch. By the time Brooklyn had taken one step backward toward the gate, the lion stood, not like a lion, and ran at her, crouched forward, lunging and reaching with bony hands, the lion skin flailing on her back, on the back of a small, brown-skinned woman with blood smeared over her mouth. What started as a warm and mild afternoon had begun to shift toward a winter storm. A wall of clouds appeared over the mountains around four o'clock, and by five the sky was overcast and pale, while fine snow, like spilled salt, swirled in the driveway. 
Rhett clicked the remote clipped to the visor of his black Jeep Wrangler as it idled, and he watched the garage door shudder and then start to lift. He saw the light go on in the garage beneath it. The door made it halfway up and stopped, and, curiously, the light went out too. It wasn't just jammed. Even though this should have suggested an unfortunately timed power failure, Rhett punched the remote with his finger three more times before grumbling and stopping his engine to leave the jeep there in the driveway with the door halfway up. Rhett figured he would joke about this stupid garage door to Katie when she came over for dinner again that evening. It could put a bright spin on a good nuisance, knowing it gave you material. He smirked grimly as tiny snowflakes pecked at his face. The front door was locked, which told him Brooklyn probably wasn't home yet. She would normally go in by the garage, but then unlock the door about the time she expected him to come home. She obeyed his wishes to keep the door locked while she was home alone, but he didn't fight her on this show of thoughtfulness. Rhett, already forgetting about the garage door, flipped the light by the door, and the living room lit up. Huh, he mused. Either the power was already back on, or it was just one of those little weird things that always happened since he bought this house from his realtor friend Zeke at Atlas. Brand new lights going out, interior doors popping open by themselves. They had joked about a haunting, but had only just joked. It was all explicable, in fully rational terms. Maybe he'd tell Katie about these little oddities. Maybe he could freak her out a bit. Rhett called out for Brooklyn and got no reply, confirming that she wasn't home. But then something else seemed to be missing, too. Setting down his bag on the sofa, he looked around the house, squinting. Then he called for Matilda. Rhett hurried to the back slider, unlatched it, threw it open, and then shouted for the dog. His next thought was about the lion, and the dog's disappearing and how Brooklyn would have a heck of a time getting over it if anything had happened to Matilda. But then that led to another question, one that prickled his neck. Stepping back from the door and facing the staircase, he called out again. Brooklyn! There was no reason for the dog to be out if Brooklyn had not come home. Rhett ran into the garage through the laundry room and found his daughter's blue wrangler in its spot. Shit, he muttered. But he reminded himself he didn't know anything yet. She was probably just out with Matilda and was fine. But even if so, he was mad that she was out there alone with the cat still at large. He fumbled for his phone, his flip phone, and texted Brooklyn. Rhett went back to the kitchen and paced beneath the can lights. He hadn't thought to finish closing the garage door. When Brooklyn hadn't replied, given no more than a minute, he pressed call. It rang five times and went to voicemail. Damn it, he said and slammed the flip phone down on the counter. He reminded himself he didn't know anything, but the not knowing was driving him nuts. It allowed his imagination to play, and something just felt off. Rhett tried to reassure himself over the next 30 seconds, but then he ran upstairs to get his Walther from the nightstand. There was a sound when he came back down onto the main floor. The garage door was closing. He poked his head into the garage. Brooklyn, he called. There was no one. The damned haunted door had sobered up and decided to close on its own. Good for it. He tucked the gun in his waistband and headed for the back slider. He did not notice, as he passed out the slider onto the patio pad, how the can lights flickered and then dimmed, as if in brownout. The sky, above the glinting, spitting snow, had turned dark lilac. Katie's black Yukon pulled into the driveway at three minutes to six and slowed to a stop on the pad beside Rhett's black wrangler. She stepped out, with her black fashion boots, into a half-inch of fluffy, fresh snowfall, and hurried toward the front door with her head down. She could see the lights on inside, and obviously Rhett's wrangler was here. So she was surprised, after several minutes of patiently knocking and ringing the doorbell, that neither Rhett nor Brooklyn came to the door. Katie tried the handle and found it locked her pale hand shivering in the cold. Fuck, she swore under her breath and pounded the front door one more time. She took out her phone as she fell back to her Yukon, preparing to message Rhett. 
But passing by the garage door, she was startled as the mechanism clunked and the door began to lift. She turned and watched, expecting Rhett to be on the other side, letting her in through the garage for who knows what reason. But the door rose to her knees, roughly, and then stopped as the light inside went out. Rhett? she called. Brooklyn? Kitty ducked to try and see into the garage. It was dark, but she saw the teal wrangler sitting in the left bay. Calling Rhett one more time, Kitty crawled into the garage. The house felt vacant. There was a strange sense of being there alone that she felt just standing in the garage. She'd tried the door to the mudroom and found it also locked, even though she could see light in the cracks around it. Kitty knocked, loudly, and prepared to call Red. She turned with her phone in her palm and was caught by the sight through the partway raised garage door in the pale blue-gray lit snow of large feline legs pacing outside. Kitty slapped the garage door control that was mounted by the mudroom door and found it unresponsive. She watched a tail flick behind the backlit, pacing haunches. She dialed Rhett and, predictably, got no answer. Then, fighting for air, she called 911. What is your emergency? The dispatcher's voice chimed. The quickness of it after pressing call startled Kitty, and she tried to gather the words to explain her situation. Before she could, she realized she must have been mistaken all along. She had just seen what she wanted to see, to scare herself. Because the legs walking around outside the garage door were a woman's. Uh, I'm not sure anymore. Hold on. She said into the phone and then called. Brooklyn? Who's there? The feet stopped facing the garage. They were bare, in the snow, turning brown-blue. Something, a piece of clothing dangled behind the athletic calves. It was a puma's tail. Who's there? Kitty called again. I have the police on the line. The garage door rattled as a little hand grabbed the bottom edge of it, and a face peered beneath. A shadowed face with eyes that glowed golden like a cat's. A swart speck progressed through the virgin snow across the plains toward Massacre Hill, leaving a winding trail through otherwise untouched accumulation with the body she dragged and fought with, slightly larger than her own. Growling, spitting, huffing, as she pulled at the unconscious lump by neck or by arm. In twilight, the snow glowed deep blue. Flakes struck the woman, who was once a Sioux, in the face, melting at the touch but making her squint. She sneered and spat. Her expression was more that of an animal than a rational human. In her mind, emotions flared in cycles like the bursts of color from a muted TV, filling the void instead of fully formed thoughts. Hunger, fear, rage, and some desire more difficult to name. An arousal toward vengeance, perhaps. Had rational thought been present, she may have wondered, against whom? and she may have recognized the answer was everyone, everything. A recollection flashed. Dogs. It was always dogs. They chased her over the ridge by Piney Creek, as the white men from Fortfield Kearney jeered in line on the hill. The dogs had treated her down by the creek like any common lion, and she waited hours for the men to follow to finish her, but... And this she well knew. She wasn't the only one being hunted that morning. The dogs, bereft of masters, eventually left. The bitter smirk of fate had sneered upon her once again. Now, dragging the unconscious woman through the new snow, something welled up inside her and broke forth as a piercing mortal cry in the falling night. Brooklyn blinked. The world was gray and clouded, but she was gazing at her father and Katie, and the snow below them was soaked in something dark. She hurt incredibly, foremost her wrists hurt. She hung from a branch of a willow, 
Her wrists were bound together by strips of bailing twine over the branch. The cold wind coursed over her. A small figure worked at starting a fire, hunched over it, shielding it from the wind with her body. That scrappy puma skin covered her slight frame, with the head gazing eyelessly, stupidly, from her shoulder like a disused hood. Brooklyn couldn't see the woman's face. She could only hear her grunting and chuffing as she labored over the kindling. As Brooklyn's eyes cleared and adjusted to the twilight, she examined her father again and tried to speak. Dad? She mewed. The cat lady stopped and glanced over her shoulder at Brooklyn with flint-black, piercing eyes. Brooklyn could begin to understand what was happening. Her father, it was too horrible to consider. And there, on the ground by the catwoman, there lay Matilda, gutted like a deer. She screamed. The woman rose from the fire pit and skittered toward Brooklyn, that same hunched, swift way of running she had seen before with the puma tail and limbs flailing after her. The woman came right up to her face and hissed. Brooklyn's darting eyes searched for any trace of humanity in the layered, green-gold eyes opposite her. Her breath smelled like a dog's of rancid meat. Brooklyn panted as she twisted in the air, toes barely touching the snow. She screamed again. The woman screamed in return. It was that horrible scream of the mountain lion. Brooklyn tried to kick her. Her ankles were tied together, so she had to flail and throw both of her knees at the woman together. It made weak contact that pushed Brooklyn and made her spin in the air rather than having any effect on the woman. The woman backhanded her across the cheek and hissed once more before turning her back on her and returning to the task of lighting the fire. Brooklyn cried for help. This brought the woman back to her, and she had a knife, an obsidian knife with an antler handle. The woman grabbed her at her face, squeezing her cheeks as if trying to force Brooklyn's mouth open. As she fought to keep her mouth clenched tight, it dawned on her that the woman meant to cut out her tongue. That was her solution to Brooklyn yelling. Brooklyn kept her mouth clamped and shook her head, pleading no, while tears began to run down her cheek. Eventually, the woman backhanded her again and went to work on the fire. Now Brooklyn could focus on her dad. She assessed him, up and down, her lips trembling, sobs choking in her mouth lest she make another sound and offend the woman. He looked dead, but she couldn't tell. There's blood, and his head hung down onto his collarbone. But she couldn't tell what had been done to him, and she imagined she could see him breathing. Eventually, his head lulled to the other side, and relief washed over her. She pleaded mentally for him to wake up. He would be able to do something, she was sure. The woman managed to get the kindling to catch. She covered it with her body and breathed on it. When a flame shot up, she sat back on her haunches. She stared into the night, face blank, and then as though she had thought of something, she glared over her shoulder at Brooklyn. The girl hanging in the willow brought back flashes of a time that hurt to recall, back in the Missouri, nearly two hundred years ago, though she had little sense of the count, before the Lakota Sioux had come into the Powder River Basin. Her husband, long forgotten. She had been roughly this girl's age when she'd been married to him. A brave, supposedly, though there had been nothing brave about him. It had been to avenge the honor of the family from the dishonor he'd brought, that she'd bargained with the Heoka, brought this puma's hide to the Heoka, and fallen upon this destiny. Heoka. It was a word that meant, at once, madness and holiness. It was a word for both a shaman and a clown. It was both the name of a god and the name of a curse, but the echo of the word was nothing more than the recited sound in her mind now. More meaningful and terrifying was the memory of the thunder beings, the vision of which had blessed her, no, cursed her with the power to execute her vengeance. A vision even more terrible than the evisceration she gave her coward husband's killers. She looked up, sniffing the air, and saw the swirling snowflakes descending. But up there, barely visible among them, a fleeting shadow, 
and then another. She hissed. Two big crows circled. They wanted the dog. They wouldn't get it. As the winds shifted, one dropped twenty feet in the air as the air went out from under its wings. The woman stood and screeched at the bird. They had made her fight for them, her former people. At once banished and yet their champion. When her gift from the Thunder Beings had been revealed, she had been cursed as an abomination. Woman and warrior and witch at once. A thing to be hissed at. But now also called upon, entreated, at every danger her people faced. For a while, she served. She was content to live on the fringes, yet remain useful. Such naivete even then. It wasn't until her people began to whisper of ambushes on the crow that she began to object. The Whites had acknowledged the crow land of the Powder River Basin as belonging to the crow and made treaty with them. The crow's land would be recognized and respected by them as long as the crow permitted the passage of trails to the Powder River Basin and the establishment of forts along the trail. The Sioux conceived of a lust for those lands. When she had heard the talk, even the considerations of the crow's rights and of justice aside, to make war upon the crow would now mean war against the United States, and, she knew, that could only result in the loss of everything they had. She advised against it. They mocked her. She refused to aid the raiding parties. They now eschewed her as a monster. She, finally, even went so far as to try to stop them by force. They sent dogs after her, and she vanished into the hills. It all went just as she knew it would. At first the White's hand had been light on the Sioux. But then the Sioux began raiding civilian parties along the trail. It escalated. The Whites responded with raids upon camps with women and children. Then came the massacre. She appeared to Red Cloud and Crazy Horse and the others the day before as they met on the plain by the Tongue River. Her words were already gone by then. But she stalked the ridge in the form of the cat, her eyes glowing with fire against the sunset, an ill omen at witness against them. The brother of Crazy Horse wanted to drive her off with his bow, but Crazy Horse restrained him, saying, This one is Hoka. Do not shoot. Because he too years before had been touched by the Hoka of the Thunder Beings, giving him his renowned war frenzy, and he recognized their work. When the Sioux war band did not heed, she went to Fort Phil Kearney and tried to turn the woodcutting party back to the fort. Instead, some cavalry appeared and chased her away with dogs up the Piney Creek. Shortly thereafter, the white party was ambushed, and when the responding soldiers fell for a faint retreat, they were massacred by the waiting Sioux in the second greatest victory that Red Cloud's warriors would know. The party the whites sent to recover the bodies found a field full of carnage, bloated, rotting bodies hissing in the open air. And they said, a lone mountain lion stalking among them with blood on her jaws, eyes glimmering beneath the lone, gnarled willow tree. She lunged at the crow that had swooped to pick the carcass of the dog. She screamed at it madly and tried to catch it in her hands. Spit flew from her mouth. There was thunder, a curious, unseasonable thunder. The catwoman cowered and stared, wide-eyed at the heavens. Thunder, Brooklyn wondered, hyperventilating. In a snowstorm? As bizarre as it was, it had the catwoman spooked, and she was thankful for that. Maybe it would frighten her away to take cover. The crows scattered in the din. The woman winced pulling back the corners of her mouth to grimace at the black, spitting sky. Brooklyn's wide eyes darted over the stewing low clouds. The cat lady hissed and spun around in place, crouching, and was likewise searching the clouds. Through the storm, something bright was coming, galloping like a horse. Brooklyn's mouth articulated, but her voice faltered as her eyelids fluttered against the sudden wind. On Massacre Hill, Two enormous bright figures dismounted from their horses. They were hazy and white 
bright like the lightning. As they approached down the hill, Brooklyn became aware of just how massive they were. The pair came down into the draw with the slow, heavy steps of titans, each footfall pressing into the ground and forcing red color up into the thin snow, as if the earth had been a sponge sopped with blood that now burgeoned and bubbled between their toes. No, their talons. Talons like eagles. And with each step came a clap of thunder. And with each clap of thunder, the lightning illuminated the earth like an x-ray, revealing the heaps of dead bodies sleeping skeletal within. Hundreds of whites, Lakota, Crow, and older races even lost to time. The red made puddles in the slushy snow wherever the great white beings stepped. The beings were like the drawings of children, large, featureless men, whose scribbled outlines were filled in with hailstones whose yellow, cat-like eyes shone over big, square-toothed grins shaped like jelly beans. The Catwoman stood and faced them, hissing madly, tearing at her own face. She parted her mouth into a wide slit, showing teeth, and issued her distinctive scream. One of the thunder beings raised his loaded bow toward her. Brooklyn watched the blast of lightning peel the flesh from the Catwoman's bones, flesh which flew and singed strips through the air as the snow vaporized out of the smoldering crater. Slowly, they turned their flashing, zigzagging eyes on Brooklyn, smiling fixedly. They drew their mad faces down to hers and stared into her eyes as theirs seemed to spin. She would never understand why the Catwoman was what she was, the history that made her, or what the Thunder Beings were exactly. But that was just part of the Hoka the inscrutability of a world not black and white, that doesn't pander to reason, a world full of winds and snow and lightning that cares not for the whims of man, a world filled with the corpses beneath our feet scattered by men who don't care about men. Flat blonde hair matted a little with blood fell across her face as she screamed. Now she had been touched. She did not know the word for it, but now her course was broken. Now she, also, was Hayoka. Well, are you going to do it? We've been sitting in this bar for three hours as dimmy horses. Are you going to talk to that girl over there? Quit horsing around! Nay, Matt, I can't do it. <laughs> you were chopping at the bit earlier. Get at it! Giddy up! You got this, stud! Gosh, that man needs to learn how to let up on the reins. I can't be spurring him on forever. Why the long face? Hi. My friend turned me into a demi-horse. I think it's a very handsome look. I'm Destiny. Hi, Destiny. I'm married. Horses have marriage? Uh, have you ever heard of animal husbandry? You have such a gorgeous mane. I'd like to brush it. My wife brushes it fine, thank you. <coughs> I've been using your conditioner, too. It shows! You're coming with me to the fairgrounds. I'm gonna brush that gorgeous mane, and we're getting that blue ribbon. And then we're gonna ride across the prairie in the sunset! I've got some stirrups at home! Somebody help! Pat! Help! This strange woman just tried to put a saddle on me without consent! Wait, horsey! Hold still while I put the bit in your mouth! Oh god, hashtag Matt too. We need to trot! Oh no, they've got us corralled, Matt. We're surrounded by women. I bet this is a problem you never expected to have. When we get out of here, you're getting gelded. I get the feeling we're not getting out of this, Brett. We're getting ridden till the dawn, whether we like it or not. Bad horsies. Oh god, they've called in help. It's the Horse Whisperer. Why does he have a whip? It's worse. This is the Tijuana Horse Whisperer. The horse whipperer. Brett, do something. Do sorcery. Uh, uh, Abraca, Arabica, Yabba Dabba, Scrappy Dappy, do Ralph Macchio. Brett, did it work? 
What happened? Oh, Christ. Now I'm my face on a horse. Brett, where where are you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. You're my butt. You know what? Never mind. Monster Horse Podcast is a production of Warped Box Media. Today's story was Ghost Cat by Brett Jack Horseman. Music by Brett Horse Catman 2. Good day, Monsterbaiters. Brett here. If you enjoyed this episode of Monster Porn, first, like a horse, you should question whether you've made a stable life for yourself. And second, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Hey, this is Matt, and I would like to recommend the Darkness Prevails podcast. The narrator and creator, who goes by the name Darkness, does a good job of collecting stories from the internet that are allegedly true, ranging from the paranormal to the downright terrifying experiences with real people. I've creeped myself out more than a few times listening to this podcast while working late at night. Thanks for the recommendation, Matt. Monsterbaiters, don't forget to subscribe to Monster Porn on your favorite app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay weird. And until the shark angels come, Godspeed, strange cowboy. <coughs>